The Hill Talks, a podcast by The Hill Talk. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the show. I'm Juan Ben Jr., your host, bringing you three stories you need to know, coming from the nation's oldest black collegiate newspaper. We're back after taking some much-needed time off, and this week, we're talking Sam Altman and AI, men's lacrosse, and the approximately 215 bodies found buried behind a Mississippi jail. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Joy, you're now a friend of the pod. This is your second time on, right? Mm-hmm. It sure is. Awesome, awesome. We love a return. We love a return. <laughs> this week, you wrote about Sam Altman and his visit to Howard's campus last Friday. Altman, of course, is the co-founder and CEO of OpenAI, the tech company behind ChatGPT. And he sat down with Howard president, Dr. Ben Vincent III, and Dr. William Sutherland, who runs Howard's Center for Computational Biology and Bioinformatics. Try saying that three times fast. What was this talk about? So basically, Sam Altman was talking about ChatGPT AI, how fast it's advancing, how diversity is kind of crucial for the advancement of the technology. He's also talking about how young people are kind of in a special position right now um, because we've been raised with technology and we have new ideas that can kind of help contribute to this technological boom. It seemed like he was just answering a lot of questions about AI for people who might be new to it and just kind of like what it's going to look like in the future soon. Hmm. I imagine that Howard being a college um, full of young people with ideas and willingness to participate in technology and also to the diversity question had to play a role into why he even came to Howard in the first place. He wanted to visit Howard because he wants to get perspectives of people from different backgrounds. He considers young people the technological future. And he was just saying he wanted to get out of Silicon Valley and just kind of see what other people were wanting from the technology, how they could make it more friendly to everybody so that it's not just, you know, for white people or made for the developers. And he really kind of needs like young minds to do that. Like you said, I mean, many people have concerns about not only what the future of of AI will look like when this technology becomes better and more mature in years to come, but also this question of who makes it and how just that will impact marginalized communities around the globe. Can you explain why that is a concern for some? Yeah, sure. So basically, a lack of diversity in the development of technology can mean that it only works for those who develop it. And that means that a whole subgroup of people are kind of closed out from this technology in situations where it could definitely help them. Because I guess AI is going to be something that's integrated into our daily lives. We don't really want so many people to be missing out on that sort of thing. And the more people that are present diversity-wise when building that technology, the better it will be in the long term. Hmm. Could you get a sense if people were welcoming or skeptical of what Altman had to say about AI? They were definitely intrigued, but I feel like there was also a bit of skepticalness, um, especially when it came to the Q&A. I think people were really concerned about privacy, concerned about copyright issues. Like, for instance, if AI takes art off the Internet, who is being credited for this? 
another concern was, um, I guess Black people kind of have a history of not really trusting technology. So there was a, a worry about privacy, making sure that AI is not really taking our data or kind of like getting our personal information. Um, so I think it was kind of like a mix of both. People really wanted Altman to kind of justify his AI and just explain it a bit more. Lastly, you talked to Howard's graduate director of the Center for Applied Data Science and Analytics, who had something to say on that point about Black people's historic kind of skepticism around technology. But she had a different perspective. I wonder if you can just um, explain that. Yeah, so she was just basically saying that usually we're kind of excluded from technology like this because we're not put in the spaces to participate. But there's definitely more initiatives at HBCUs and Black communities, including Howard, that are developing STEM-focused programs, data science-focused programs, so that Black people can transition well into the field and hopefully have more say in the type of technology that is being filtered into our community. Well, Joy, thank you so much for coming again um, to the podcast and taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you much for having me back on. Kyle Fisher is our sports editor at The Hilltop, and he joins us today to talk about our male bison on the lacrosse field. Kyle, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of The Hilltop, so this is a really, really big honor for me to be here right now. So thank you. Oh, we got fans. I'm excited. <laughs> thank you so much. When the lacrosse team made their return last year, it had been over eight years since our school had seen a men's lacrosse team. And at that time, sports reporter Skylar Nelson wrote about their return in August when the team was looking for a league to play in. Today, it seems like they found one, but they're having a little trouble getting in. The, the next collegiate league, it, it's something that's very forward thinking. It's a newer style of lacrosse. So they want to join this thing and they got uh, introduced to the opportunity in, in late December, early January. So it was a very quick thing. And, and unfortunately, the, the deadline for them to get everything they need, get their, all their ducks in a row, is also in January. With that, they needed help from administration, from the university, and they haven't been able to get that yet. So that approval stands in the way right now of them joining the league. Because they're still waiting on this approval from the administration, it seems like the team has chosen some other route to sort of maybe win the hearts of the university. You know, they did what they relied on in the past, and that's support from their community. In starting the team in, in its startup, they started to go me, relied on the community people that wanted to see them live out their dreams of playing in college. And they garnered over $7,000. And now they did, they've done the same thing, gone back to the community. And it looks like they haven't lost their appetite for seeing Howard Men's Lacrosse because they got a petition. Um, I think right now it's garnered over 950 signatures. Would you say that this is a kind of unique experience that our men's lacrosse team is experiencing right now? Or is this, you know, based off of your reporting on collegiate sports, is this something that you've seen before? I would love to say this is a unique experience that they're going through, but it, it's not. You can't really blame anybody. I wouldn't say it's anybody's fault, you know, because football makes the money. So you have to put your money where you're going to make the most money back. Right. But there's a lot of people with a lot of interest. And the stereotypes was that, oh, black people, football, basketball, that's it. But we have a lot of more interest in that. And, you know, it takes generosity a, a lot of the time. It takes that will. It takes that initiative. Years ago, the student reached out to Stephen Curry about starting a golf team. It was just like this, honestly, just a dream, just somebody with a passion. So you see this across a ton of sports and a ton of different endeavors within collegiate, especially HBCU sports, honestly. Like you said, the petition is breaching 950 signatures, which is just a short ways away from their goal of 1,000. Is there any kind of indication that the team's call to the community has influenced the university's decision? 
we, we know that it's, it's gotten their attention. And that is, at the end of the day, that that was part of it, just getting their attention. But as far as an official stance, that remains to be seen. And we couldn't get that at this moment. These guys want to feel like they can measure up, they can measure how their success is on, on a season and achieve a goal of winning together. And that's what this league would allow them. Okay. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. Thank you so much. Darren O'Neill is a news and politics reporter with The Hilltop. She wrote about the hundreds of bodies that were found behind a jail in Jackson, Mississippi, in what is being called a pauper's grave. Me and you, we just talked about what a pauper's grave is, but I wonder if you can explain for our audience exactly what this means. Describe the cemetery and what led to its discovery. So basically, when it comes to the cemetery itself, it was basically an open field that was filled with mainly dehydrated grass, weeds, and all of the bodies that were buried there were only marked with a metal pole and a blue spray-painted number where the gravesite was. And what led to its discovery was actually because of Betterson Wade. She was looking for her son, who I believed to be a missing person, even though she wasn't necessarily hopeful that justice would prevail and that she would find her son, she was persistent. And due to her persistence, she has opened up this opportunity for so many more families and more people to understand what's going on in this situation. I'm glad that you brought up all the families that have been impacted by this. I mean, hundreds of bodies have been found in this plot of land, as you say, behind um, this Mississippi jail. Now, Ben Crump has chosen or has been hired, actually, to represent six relatives of the deceased found in the gravesite. So what exactly is he, on behalf of these families, calling for? So as of now, Ben Crump, even though he's mainly focusing on getting the story out there, period, he mainly wants to just call for an investigation. Why did it take these families so long to learn about the death of their loved ones? He just wants to investigate the situation so these families can receive as much peace as possible and to ensure that a situation like this doesn't happen again. So has the police department or the city of Jackson offered any kind of reason as to how these people ended up here? Not surprisingly, the Jackson Police Department has been pretty decently hush-hush about this whole situation, especially considering the fact that Betterson Wade, her son, was killed by an off-duty Jackson police officer. And I think mixed with that aspect of it, that has caused the police department to be very, very strategic when it comes to what they're saying and what they're not saying. And as of now, they are not really saying anything. Well, Darren, we will definitely reach back out to you to keep us updated on the story. Thank you so much for your reporting, and I really appreciate you on talking with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Hill Talks. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me. But none of it would have been possible if it wasn't for the hard work of our reporters and editors at The Hilltop. Special thanks to Joy, Kyle, and Darren for joining me today. You can check out their stories and more of our reporting by visiting thehilltoponline.com, where we publish stories on everything from news and politics to what's happening in culture every Monday. Follow us on social media at thehilltophu. And if you liked our theme music, it was created by Terry Thomas. With that being said, this is where I leave you. Till next time, Bison.